Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next edition of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And we thank you all for continuing to tune in. And we try to give you the best that we can find in the industry in order to really deal with the issues that we're seeing. And as you know, when I'm interviewing somebody, and this week we're going to have the joy of interviewing uh, Executive Director Emeritus, Tom Stone, uh, from FBI LIDA, which is the Law Enforcement Executive Development Association. A lot of you know that I like to start my podcast out with a quote. And with Tom, Tom's had a really deep relationship in my history, in my upbringing, and I've used him as one of my mentors over the years. So I actually was looking around and I decided to come up with a quote from Nelson Mandela. He says, a leader is like a shepherd. He stays behind the flock letting the most nimble go out ahead, whereupon the others follow, not realizing that all, that all along they're being directed from behind. And the, one of the things that I, the reason why I chose that, that quote, Tom, was because I think you have a unique set of following from behind. You don't need to be the leader, but you need to make leaders. And so it's with that that I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you for those words. I appreciate it. Well, you know that uh, we have a we have a history that goes back about 15 years, and uh, and for those of you that are listening, I'll tell you the story that Tom's going to have another version of. By the way, uh, it goes something like this: I was a young lawyer at a firm, trying to get a grip on life and trying to find my way in the herd, but there was this massive man called Tom Stone who was in charge of the world. And I just kind of pulled on his little coattail and it rang on his little sleeve. I said, Tom, can I please have a muffin? <laughs> I said, can I please have a part in your world? And, uh, and I'll let Tom give you that version of events, but I've been lucky enough to be the general counsel for FBI LIDA, very humbled. And what that means is, uh, for those of you that don't know, FBI LIDA the Law Enforcement Executive Development Association is one of the three nonprofit prongs of the FBI being FBI-NA, FBI-LIDA, and FBI-NEI. Now, the, the best part about that is we're about to talk to today the founder of FBI-LIDA, and I love talking to founders because I got to hear his story so many times as he drew the emblem on the, on the napkin in a diner trying to figure out what this would look at. So, Tom, uh, I'm humbled to have you, and I thank you for all your direction over the years. But could you give the listeners a little background of your history in law enforcement? Sure. Basically, I, I started, uh, was sworn in September the 1st, 1966. And looking back on it, probably one of the best times I ever had in law enforcement was walking a footbeat and getting to know the people by walking a footbeat. Of course, today police officers don't know what a foot beat is. Yeah, I was like, what's a foot beat, Tom? Yeah. I started out in Virginia, then, then I went to Metro Dade, Florida, which is now Miami Dade Police Department, and, and spent a considerable time there and then was appointed a police chief in the city of Manassas Park in 1979. Stayed there a couple of years, was a chief of police in the city of Bristol, Virginia for 12 years. And then I was the chief of police in the uh, municipality of Norristown, which uh, borders Philadelphia, for about uh, nine years. I was in Brussels 12 years, in Norristown, nine years. 
And at the end of that uh, time in, in active law enforcement, I had been to the lead school in 1984 at the uh, uh, FBI Academy. There were a bunch of people who had graduated from the FBI lead school and there was no organization. So a few of us got together and decided to form an association. We put in a hundred charter memberships and we were able to secure 64 people that signed on as charter members. Uh, in 2001, I had been elected to president in 1996. And it was just a loosened organization. It had no organizational value to it at all, really. Right, right. And in 1996, I was elected to president. We had 350 members. My goal was to have 500 members. And then in 2001, they asked me if I would be the executive director and take over kind of mailing stuff to people. And that's how that <laughs> happened. And we started in, in talking with police and, and law enforcement leaders around the country. They said, we need some training and we can't afford to go to the high dollar training that was being put on by a couple of associations. So uh, I basically designed a two and a half day course on leadership and management. Got a colleague of mine and we went out and started the first one. The funny thing is our board of directors at FBI leaders said they thought it would never last, but they would be happy if we did three of them. And it's now exploded into, uh, I think we did 12,000 students last year and order, uh, have a cadre of programs. But it was because we took, I took like the Sam Walton method. He, he said, wherever people need something, I'll build a store. Right. So I said with Lena, wherever you need the training, we'll bring it to you because you can't, a lot of agencies back then couldn't afford to send people and the per diem and so forth. So we took the training to them and wherever they wanted us to go, we would go. And, and uh, the profit wasn't anything in, in, involved. It was just training cops. We were cops talking to cops. Uh, it started to evolve from a two and a half day. Then they wanted to expand it. So we did a five day. Then we expanded the programs from uh, a basic supervisor leadership to uh, a command institute, then an executive leadership. And, and now it, the tentacles have to reach even further to catch up with policing in today's society because of the challenges they have to make. Uh, as you know, when I met you in 2007, we were very tough on instructors. They had to be the very, very best. Uh, and I met you in Arlington, Texas, in a class we were doing there. Yep. And you said you could do constitutional, introduce constitutional law better than me. And you were certainly right. Uh, and improved <laughs> that throughout the years. Uh, so that's how it got started. And in the 13 years I was there as executive director, the, the paradigms of policing have changed so much that the leader had to keep up with that and changing the curriculum and so forth to meet the demands. And now I can sit back from a, a little distant view and hear what's going on around the United States and see what people are being offered. Because I think there's a, this is a truly a critical time in law enforcement. Uh, as you said, I've been around almost five decades. I've seen a lot, but I don't think I've ever quite seen the challenges that uh, are facing uh, law enforcement today especially with recruitment and retention and, and what the, uh, the chiefs and leaders 
are faced and what they are not facing is, is I guess the best way to say it. I don't I, I don't see some of the uh pizzazz and police chiefs that I used to see because of the political climate. And I think that's really having a terrifically bad effect on the young men and women that we're trying to bring in. Yeah, and I mean, I want to make sure that the listeners, let's point this out. I mean, we're talking about four decades of law enforcement plus a decade or two of, of LIDA operations, 22 years as a chief of police and, and or public safety director, and spending uh, almost uh, 12 years as the executive director and since then is involved. So the key is what I hear when Tom says that is that it, this, this, the issues that we're going through today is, are, are unique. And um, to hear you say that they're challenging is obviously concerning for everybody. Well, I think so. You know, so, during, during, the, during the years, people wanted to come on the job. They had a, they had a reason to come on the job. And now when I talk to police administrators around the country, and I'm fortunate enough to keep my hands in it enough to where I, I, I talk to a lot of them, they can't get to recruits to recruits. So, you know, that all they want is what's in it for me. When do I get off? Do I have to work weekends? What's the training like? And I think, I think that paradigm has to change. Uh, and, and the police leaders have to step up and take a little bit more control in the way that uh, they're operating their departments and putting out the training and the selection process and the retention process. Uh, uh, I think it needs to be tightened up. I think the new people need to want to come on the job. I know in the, in the greater Philadelphia area, the, they can't get police, but nobody wants to be uh, a, a police officer. And I, I fault a lot of, on the municipalities because of, views that they take on on how things should be in this country and they're not letting the police do the job that they're supposed to do police not gonna they're not gonna abuse people there's gonna be cases of it but in general the, the police are there and if they're well trained and well supported they're gonna do what they have to do and what they're supposed to do and uh it, it's it's not gonna be where they are beating and abusing people it's gonna be the job helping people and that's a message we have to get to the new to the new police officer and to the police leaders. Well, one thing that I really appreciated with you is I'm a student of trying to make law enforcement better. Um, I'm a student of trying to figure out what they need and how they need. And you, you made a business out of it at a time where business in this arena wasn't valuable. So let's start there. When you first decided to start FBI LIDA, obviously you saw a need for executive level training. But what was your initial what was your initial drive and what did you think that would look like at the time that you started FBI LIDA? I didn't really know what it would look like. I, I knew that there was a need, but I was searching for, for what exactly the need was. And then almost from the first class we did was in Jackson, Mississippi, and we had 90 people in the class, which just flabbergasted me. I didn't believe we'd get that many. And we even had uh, people from Maui, Hawaii, that came to Jackson for the first class. And, and they absorbed the, what we were doing like a sponge. And that, that just led right away to say, we, we've just got to do more of this, just more of the basic leadership and, and teaching them about leadership 
not so much about management because it's such a distinction between management and leadership. We wanted to teach them the leadership, how to make decisions, what to do in critical theories and, and so forth. And uh, then it exploded in, in, into the vast areas it's in now. And, and I don't think, uh, I, I think we're at a critical time where leader needs to expand this program. Uh, uh, I think chiefs need a specific training just for chiefs of police to give them some uh, some information and knowledge because of the tremendous turnover in police teams. Uh, I think what, what you do and, and your colleagues do, the legal aspect of it, that they, they, they've got to really hone in on that so everybody knows where they stand so that these young men and women coming up uh, are not fearful to go out there and that they want to go out there and do their job and be proactive rather than just answering calls. Well, yeah, I think for me it was really the tire hitting the road when I first sat in your class in, uh, uh, I want to say it's about 2006 or somewhere, right? And, uh, and we went, I went to the command leadership training, and for me, coming from the military before the state police, I was really uh, focused on leadership training, but you said it exactly. Uh, you know, there's a difference between managing and leadership and one of the things that I've noticed in my profession, which correlates to what you've been doing, is that people perceive that you get chevrons or you get rank and you become a leader. And that's just not the way it works, right? No, it's not the way it works. And I believe the leadership training, the departments have to be particularly mindful now in the FTO programs they have and how they're turning out you know, what, what, what's a, a new police officer gets out of the academy? The long road is really ahead of them. Uh, they sit there for 26 weeks or whatever. They learn all the basics. And then it's incumbent upon the, the, the police departments. I think they have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure they're putting the best FTOs out there. They've got to give the FTOs incentive. They, they've got to be uh, benchmarks to hit with the uh, new people. And to teach them how, how, to, how to lead and, and how to, not to be afraid to be a police officer. Right. Some of them are, 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 are timid in their approach to law enforcement because they don't feel they have the backing. And a lot of them don't feel they have the, the knowledge that they need to go out there and do the job. But mainly a lot of them now is they don't, have the, the, don't feel they have the backing. The knowledge part is frustrates me because people like me and you, your whole career, spend so much time trying to give them knowledge. But one thing that we can't give them is confidence, the decision-making confidence. And, and that's where I'm so, – so what I would really like to do, and because you've given me advice over the years as a, as a young executive working my way up, and um, you know I've been honored to have you at my house and uh, have my wife cook you chicken parm – but, but I don't want everybody else to miss out on that, which is, so I'm going to ask you this direct question. If you were to go to a diner today and sit down with an officer that's got a year or two on the job and have a cup of coffee and breakfast, what advice would you give that young officer that was just starting out in the job today? Probably the... the to, to take the, the, the a tenacity approach to what they're doing, to learn everything they can, to keep their 
keep their eyes open and not to be afraid to ask questions and not afraid to question decisions that are made when given a task to do. The young police officers I found around the country, and I talked to someone we were out in Phoenix a month or so ago, they just don't feel like they have any voice. They feel like if they ask questions, that they're looked upon in a different way. And that's what we've got to we've got to stop. You said it right, but just because you put three stripes on somebody's arm, they're not a leader. You know that, that that's they're given a position, that, and that that's the, the long journey of leadership that they have to learn and should be learning it before the stripes get on the arm, and as they progress up through the ranks, to give the confidence and to listen, to be a good listener, to listen to these young officers, and listen to what they say. One of the things I found successful when I was a police chief is I would meet with representatives from each division, from the patrol division and so forth, but each squad would have to pick the members who were going to meet with me. It wasn't like the sergeant picked them, the, the, the peers picked them, and I would meet with them, like you said, I would meet with them in an off-site location, a restaurant, a diner, or something like that, and just sit down and talk to them. Just talk to them to hear what people are saying. I don't think police leaders they are talking enough to the to their troops. There, I don't think they're listening. They want the troops to listen, but are they listening? And are they taking the information in and seeing what they can do with it so they can pass it up the chain? And, and nobody could say that. Well, we don't have time to do that. You don't have time not to do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you were sitting with that young officer and the officer looked at you and, you know, a little concerned about the future, concerned about their choices of being a police officer. Um, and they asked you to identify what you think have been the most significant developments in policing over your years of experience. What would you identify as something that has been uh, the positive or the positive impact on law enforcement? Probably the first thing that comes to mind is in the area of forensic sciences, how, how that's come to, to be such a great help to, to law enforcement in, in the detection and, and conclusion solving of crimes. Uh, I, I think the training is, is coming along. I don't think it's where it should be. I think Lena, of course, is leading the way with what they're doing, but I don't think that uh, agencies are spending enough time effort and resources on training their people. You need to train the leaders. You've got the forensic sciences that are helping uh, helping out tremendously. So I, uh, that's one of the greatest impacts I've seen. You know, you can always sit back and say, I was in Miami Day during the turbulent times uh, in, in law enforcement history, and we, there was no forensic sciences. We just had to operate by the seat of your pants almost. And you sit back and you look and say, boy, if we'd have had this or had that. And to keep up with the technology, the departments now, the, the chiefs and the leaders and the, the politicians have to give the resources to the department to keep up with what's going on so they keep their people interested in the job they're doing. A lot of police are not, the only thing they're interested in is when their days off are and what benefits they're getting. They're not interested in going out and being a policeman. That's, and I, I'm using the term policeman because that's what it is. You just, you've got to be interested 
and going out and you got to want to do that job, wake up every morning wanting to do it, rather than waking up like a, a lot of them just dreading to go in there because you don't know what mundane task they're going to put on you. Yeah, and I, I can't, I, I appreciate you for saying that because I, I don't understand that. I mean, uh, being a police officer is a calling. It's it's made for certain people and, and you have to be dedicated. If you're looking for a pat on the head, this is not the place for it. Oh. If you're looking for moral and ethical satisfaction that you're doing good by people, this is the place for it. Well, it's a it's a place for it, and and, and I see this and and argue with a lot of people in, in law enforcement. After people reach a certain level, and I'm talking about the Mid America Police Department, I'm not talking about the Los Angeles, Chicago's, and New York's where you have thousands and thousands of people. But when you have a law enforcement agency, small, medium, or, or mid-sized agency, too many times the chief of police buries himself in his office, his or her office. They don't get out. They don't know really what's going on within their agency. And that fills us down to the command staff. They don't know what's going on. And the one thing that, that I did during my time as a police chief was be out in the field, be out among the people, uh, and, and insist that the command staff do the same, to know what's going on. You can't lead unless you know what's going on. And to bury yourself in the office it, it is, I, I think, a big mistake that the law enforcement administrators are doing. And if they say, well, I can't find the time to do the paperwork and also get out and be among the troops, then maybe they should reevaluate that career plan. Well, I mean, uh, I'm going to work my way up the food chain with you because I know this is where your specialty becomes. Um, I consider you to be a chief builder. Uh, I think you've built uh, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of police executives around the country that have taken your FBI leader training and, and have learned from you. So let's just go to the next level and let's say the key principles with supervision and being a first-line supervisor and the challenges of being a first-line supervisor. Let's just change that scenario to the point where you are sitting down and having lunch with a, with a brand new sergeant who's just been given those nice shiny chevrons, and they are now uh, responsible for the daily lives of six to ten individuals. Um, what advice would you give that supervisor for being a better sergeant? Number one is they have to know and understand the people who work with them, not the people who work for them, because if the sergeant thinks that people work for them, they've got a problem right there. You have to go in with the attitude of people work with you and that it's all, that there's no, you know, the old cliche, there's no I in team. I think it's extremely important for the, for the supervisors to, to know their people, to understand their people. That way, when, when things happen in, in one of that person's lives, they're in a better position to understand and, and uh, adapt to that situation so they, they can help them out. And let them know that, that you, you, come, you have a resource to come to, that there's no such thing as a, a dumb question and, and things like that, and that you're visible out there. You respond to the calls. You don't take over on the calls, but you respond and they know you're a resource on the calls and, and help you out and try to build your career with educational opportunities and just get to know their people and let the people know that it's everybody's there for each other. And there's no, 
separation. I'm a sergeant, you know, too many people that get this sergeant syndrome thing, and I just want to smack them. I don't guess I should say that, but I mean, just and you me can say it all day long. That's the joy of a I, podcast, Tom. I, I just want to give them the back of this old southern hand right there and take their grits away from them because <laughs> they, they just don't, they don't, you know, they, they feel this empowerment. I'm a sergeant. Well, yeah, you're a sergeant, you know, and but but then your job, you've got a, a, a bigger job other than putting the bad guys in jail and helping the people. You've got to to mentor and, and you you've got to cultivate uh, the people that work with you to make them better officers the the one thing I, I always strive to do and and tell police chiefs and people in command positions to do is, is i would sit around in, in the last department i had and you would sit around the table and you would have your command staff and i wanted every one of them to want my job more than i do that's awesome. I wanted them to prepare themselves to want it more than I did. And man, I wanted it a lot. So they had a tough hill to climb, <laughs> but to prepare themselves to, to want that job. And I think, you know, when, when you, when you get past, even when you, when you get into the lieutenants and the captains and no matter what to, what to you call people in the rank structure, uh, duties change, and you know, a lot of people say, Well, I'm a lieutenant, all I do that is administrative. And, and don't tell me that, don't don't tell a good chief all you do is administrative. There's no reason you still can't get out and, and know the people and know the community. And too many of our law enforcement people are hiding behind that desk. And I don't know that, that many criminals that come in and surrender to them. So <laughs> it, 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 it's it's time that the, the law enforcement leaders got out. And the chiefs have to insist on that. And the chiefs have to get the confidence so they can let it go down the chain. You can have that sergeant talking to the new six or seven people on the ship, but if he doesn't feel he has the backing and confidence of the people above him, that's the message that he's going to relate to them. Right. And they're right. going to grab that because the men and women we get today, they're sharp as a tack. And, you know, they're lots of yeah. old fellows that were at the time. And they can pick it up right away. And, and the other thing with, with the social media thing with, with law enforcement, you know, uh, you just got to be so careful with what they do and how they mentor the people on their shifts that you know from, from the work that you and your colleagues do around the country. Probably one of the most dangerous things the policeman carries on him is an electronic device with a send button. That's true. Uh, you know, <laughs> you don't make the best decisions. They don't make the best decisions when they hit that send button. Uh, right. And uh, the, the sergeants have to give the people confidence and the people can see whether it's true or, or manufactured. And, and uh, you can tell if somebody cares about you. And if you don't want to do that, stay up. You know, we need career police officers. We need career. We call them career patrolmen. In my day, they call them bumper Morgans. The guy who would walk the foot beat for 25 years, that's all he wanted to do. We need that because uh, uh, you need unofficial leaders on the job. And that's another job the sergeants have to do is say, okay, I've got six people. And of those six, probably two or three of them are going to be my unofficial leaders. And, and uh, you have to sit back and listen to people that are talking to you and then chart their course. Well, the one thing I learned from you, Tom, and one of the things that I guide. Uh, and I see to be a big problem across the country is that 
we have a lack of mentorship in law enforcement. That that one of the things I say in training all the time is that if we really cared about our agencies, we would focus more on mentorship than leadership, and we would we would learn to build the people underneath us. So. Give, it, give us a little bit on your philosophy of, of the importance or how leadership is supposed to, or how mentorship is supposed to work in our organizations. Well, I think, I think you hit on a real important thing. We were asked a month ago at, this, at, the, at the FBI leader conference, some of the uh, people asked, some of the old timers who were there, what does a leader need to do? And, and that's a point you, you just hit on it. It was almost unanimous among us that we said, we need to start training the top level of law enforcement how to make sure that their people are mentoring and know what mentoring really means rather than directing. You can direct somebody to do something. That's not mentoring them. That, you know, you're putting them off in a different direction. Right. But the, the, the leaders of the organization have to have that confidence. And, and you put together people who've been in the profession and can answer the question. And, and you give it to the top and let it go down. That that's where I think we're missing a lot because a lot of times when people get promoted and once they get promoted, they think they know everything. You know that you've seen it. Right. And when you were with the, the state police and in your military career, what they think they know everything and they don't know a damn thing. They don't well, know. They a damn know thing. I know one thing: it crumbles department when when they think they know what they're doing and they don't. Right. I, you, I made you, a business you, out you, of it. <laughs> yeah, you make a business. You know. Uh, it's like somebody said, oh, all these criminals running around. I said, well, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have a job. <laughs> and it's true. And, and, and if, it, if it wasn't for the police leaders doing a lot of mentoring and, and maintaining good policies and procedures and, and knowing what's going on in the department, you might be a little shy on work. Yeah, I might have to so, put the badge back on and go back on patrol. Yeah, you, you'd have to get back on the street. And, and I don't know uh, that I could do that, Tom. <laughs> it, it, it's the, the the policeman coming into today's society it, it, it's really tough I, I think the screening processes i think they're trying to get numbers versus quality i, I know from personal experiences with people i know that in very large departments that they're not getting the candidates that they used to get and which is putting a, a tremendous job everybody now wants 20 and out when i came on the job at 20 years you were just learning where the men's room was you were just really getting excited about the job right. and didn't want to leave it. You look forward to coming to work. And now it's, it's just a completely different thing. But the chiefs and, and the sheriffs, uh, and there's no real difference. The sheriffs run their organization. They are elected. A chief is a politician every day of his life as a police chief. You know, the people say police chiefs are not politicians. That's a day. That's a lie. You politic every, you know. I, I know if I, if I had seven people on my city council, I had to learn how to count to four. <laughs> you know, I always had to, you know, if I had five, I had to learn how to count to three. And, and that's what these, these people need, but they need the confidence of leadership. And if the leaders have, have a, 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 a bad, just by, you know, what attitude, it filters right down to the troops. And that's the attitude they're going to go and deal with the public with. And it's incumbent upon the mid-level managers and the chief to cease that type of operation in that department. And they've got to have the, the courage and the backbone to do that. But too many of them, now, they don't want to rock the boat, whatever rocking the boat means. Yeah. They're afraid, they're afraid to stand up and, and hold their people accountable, I think. And it needs to be done. 
It absolutely needs to be done. And so if they can't do it, find somebody who will. Yeah, so let's dive right into that one because I think you are the man to talk about building the perfect police chief. And there's no such thing as perfect, but let's move no. to the rank of police chief. And uh, while I hope we have a few police chiefs listening to this podcast, if you're in, and I have faith in the new police chiefs, but there's a couple of things that we've learned. And, and we talked over at, uh, at Phoenix at the FBI leader conference. And one of the articles that we just did in a podcast we just did was on uh, general Westmoreland and the Vietnam war. And one of the things that they looked at in the Vietnam war was the problem in the military was that they were promoting people that were not prepared to be promoted. They were not promoting people that were not, qualified to be promoted and so when they got into that position they failed because they didn't have the skill sets so if i if you had to sit down so now we have a police chief so we're talking about a steak dinner with bourbon right we're gonna you're sitting down having that steak dinner good bourbon good bourbon (laughs) yes with a cigar later i know i know how you roll tom don't worry right so you have a new, brand new police chief. I'm a new police chief. And I look at you and say, Tom Stone, you are the builder of police chiefs. What can you tell me to give me guidance on how to be an effective police chief in my organization? Uh, unless there's a crucial, crucial problem within your department, keep your mouth shut for the first months. Learn what's going on. Listen to people. Know the organization, the old whiff of thing, managed by walking around. Learn the organization and listen to people. Too many times we find the police chiefs, and when I would talk to them again, they'd say, well, I want to change this right away, and I want to change that right away, and so forth. Even if they've come up through the ranks, they need to stop. They need to take the time to learn the organization, learn how the politics run in the organization, learn how the politics run in the city, and because once you go into that corner office, other than the key to the executive watch room, you have to know the environment that you're putting your people out in. And that's the political environment, the social environment. Uh, too many times police chiefs, they, they don't seek the advice of the people in the community. They don't know what the community wants. We strive, we tell them to get out there and learn, learn the community, even though you've been policing there, all your career, you're going to be policing in a different mode and you're going to have to learn it from a different angle. But the main thing is, is stop and listen to what's going on the minute you become that police chief and learn from that. Of course, if you've got an immediate, if you're being brought in as an outsider as I was, and, and it's usually because there are problems in the department and they, and they want you to, to fix a, the fix problem right away. But otherwise, when we talk to police chiefs around the country, and I had the honor and pleasure of uh, going around this great country and, and running assessment centers for police chiefs. And, and after we would put them through the drills and, and, and the so forth and different exercises, we would sit down and do the interview process. That one of the questions we would ask them is, is what are you going to do when you first get there? And, and, and you know, well, I'm going to I want to change this, or I want to change that. Uh, that, that grades would go down. We want people who are going to listen and evaluate and, and look at things through all the lenses. Feel that you can ask somebody. That, that's, a lot of times police chiefs are hesitant to ask other police chiefs or other people for advice. They think it shows weakness. 
it doesn't show weakness, it shows strength. And uh, to, to learn that there are mentors out there that they can call and ask questions to and not be afraid to do that. Uh, they, they've got to learn the process and then listen to the people in the organization. That's great. That's the best advice I've ever heard. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't know what to fix until you know what the problem is. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you get them to come in with gangbusters and all of that sort of stuff. And then the, the, the jewelry they put on that collar weighs them down. And it, it, it doesn't take long for it to filter through the organization. And once the, the people are smart today, the, 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 the men and women we have are smart. They can detect it right away. They can detect the political undertone right away with the police chief and the elected officials and so forth. And it's a tight line you have to walk. But the only way you can walk and be successful on that tight rope is to know what's on either side of that rope. You have to know what's going on. And too many of them, uh, there's the police chief in that area. And uh, I, I don't think they would know where the street is. You know, they know where <laughs> their desk is. But, you know, they've never seen the troops, never see the chief. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's wrong. Chiefs have to be remember where they came from. You know, the, the old thing, you never forget where you came from. Well, that's the way it is with police chiefs. And we're going to get police chiefs that are politically appointed. You know, you can put them through the testing process. The cities and counties know who they want. And, and, and that's a disservice to the agency, but it's a fact of life. You, you get a good competitive process and bring people up and have a fair process. And then uh, I almost think that one of the prerequisites when a person becomes a chief or something like that is they ought to be enrolled right away in the Metro plan. You know, have somebody to help them. You know, uh, there, there are plenty of people out there who will give them help. They, just, they, need, to, they need to stop and, and see what's going on in their agency. Well, I want to give you a little bit of a difficult question, and that's because, you know, I like to like to call it as it is. And so, uh, as you know, media and social media have increased over the years. So you kind of talked about that. What's your opinion on the manner and the type of scrutiny that police have received on a daily basis that we've seen? I, I think a lot of it is completely unfair, but I'm also a realist to know that uh, policemen uh, shoot themselves in the foot. Right. You know, they they, they, uh, they create some of them by the stupid things that they do, and it's no way to call it other than stupid. Right. So they create the headlines for themselves, and, and then the whole agency and the whole profession has to bear it. Uh, uh, social media... I think it's ruining a lot of agencies. I think a lot of agencies are suffering with it. I don't know the answer to that question. That's where people in your area of expertise about the use of the social media while they're working and things like that. Uh, but you always got to remember where we didn't have to remember, you know, and I'm not getting a lot of detail about that where we did back in the other days. <laughs> Let's just say that. you're probably happy you didn't have body worn cameras, right? Oh, good God, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, but that was a different time. Because I think you did give me your blackjack, so yeah. I, I know that it was really used. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, it was black. It was, it was used, but that was a different time. But 
they've got to remember that from the minute they, they walk out of that building and not even from the minute they walk out of the building. And that's what I, we try to tell them that the, the minute they step in the building, they're on camera. Right. Somebody's always watching everything you do, and there's no such thing as a secret. You know, the the, the, the social media, and, and they've got to be on that toes the whole time. Are we going to stop cops from doing stupid things? Of course not. Of course not. But but they can certainly uh, reduce the, the liability that they put themselves under if they just stop and think rather than trying to play for the camera. I, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, when, when I came to, uh, to, to Norristown, there was a program on called cops. I think it's been re revisited. You know, they had bad boy, bad boy. The cops are going to get you. <laughs> You're not going to sing that, are you? No. <laughs> and, and, uh, the producers came because it was a pretty rough little city outside of Philadelphia. They wanted to, uh, to bring that crew in to do the, the cops program. And I sat and listened to him, and after listening to him, it, it took me maybe three seconds or something like that to tell him not no, but hell no. And, and the reason, and, and some people who allow it in that department now would disagree with it, because once you put that camera, and this is back 25 years ago. Right. Once you put that camera out there, then the police are going to act to the camera. Right. You know, they, they, they're going to, they're going to do things, and, and and now they've got to realize that there's a camera on them all the time, and, and people want to get that shot of what the police are doing to make something a lot of time out of what is not there to make something out of. Right. Uh, and then again, it can be a great tool to protect the officers. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough time, but with good leadership, I, I think we, we will overcome most of it. We'll never get to 100%. Right. So my last question for you, as we wrap this up, and uh, and I, trust me, it's truly an honor to have you with me. Um, what does the future of law enforcement look like to you? Now, I know you're not directly involved in it, but you still go to this, the events and you still interact with the executives. And and if we're looking towards the future, what do you, what do you think the major significant impacts and challenges that we're going to be faced with? Probably motivating the employees to do what they're supposed to do. And, that's uh, yeah, uh, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge we have. I think the, the, the agencies are have to educate, teach and, and mentor their, their supervisors and their people from, from when you come into the department. I'm a little concerned uh, at the path it's taken now, uh, at the vilification that the police are getting so that the, the, the police are not doing what they're supposed to. So I think the challenges in, in the coming years, in the coming months, hell, in the coming days, or, or, or mounting, and, and uh, we, we've got to get over that. And it's going to take strong leadership and, and people to understand and understand what law enforcement is really about to, to get over that hurdle and not just get on the job to work for the day of retirement. Right. There, there, they've got to be incentives that, that they've got to want to stay and, and build an agency 
and, and build a group of people around them. Otherwise, I think we're in for, for a tough time. Well, I mean, I can't appreciate that more in the fact that I don't, and I know you're the same way. I don't do time for anybody. A job is, I'm not in prison. If you're not making any positive changes, then this is not for you. No. It's life quality. And it's a quality of life, and that's the issue. You know, the chief of police or the sheriff, his main concern, you know, am I affecting the quality of life in my jurisdiction and making it better? And it filters down. Uh, I don't. I don't think we're. I think we're in a dark time. I don't think we're in a in a, a death spiral. But I think we're. We've got to. We've got to change the minds. Uh, of some police executives, we've got to change the mind of some politicians, and, and uh, uh, there's got to be a, a meeting of the mind somehow, somehow with with media outlets and, and things like that. Everybody's striving for the headlines and, and, and so forth, and uh, having good media relations in the department, I think, is important. Uh, I don't think a police chief spend enough time on that to have good spokespeople to speak for the department or to teach them how to speak for the department to make a positive image. Too much of it is they're just, they're not addressing the real problems. They're just addressing the fact that they have the agency and don't sometimes can't see the forest for the trees. Well, Mr. Stone, I got to thank you very much for all the, time and energy you've dedicated to making my life and my career better. Uh, you have been a large impact in keeping me in the right direction and, and most importantly, giving me the opportunity to do the things that I enjoy to do. Um, and, and so I want you to know from my heart, and I think you already do know this, how much I appreciate you and love you and think you're an awesome leader and, uh, I just feel bad that not everybody else could also have learned from the masters. So, so I do thank you for that. It's a small spoke in the big wheel and I appreciate your kind words. And, uh, you know, we're, we're there to help as long as we've got a breath in that body. Right. Well, you keep that breath there for a while and keep that <laughs> bourbon on tap for me. And I'll do uh, that. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Take care, my friend. Thank you. And I'll end as I end all. Help those who need your help. Protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.